Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The Old Testament book of Proverbs in Proverbs in chapter number 6. Good, don't switch me, Max. Keep me on this. Good. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 6. And if you don't mind, look with me in Proverbs chapter 6 and notice with me starting at verse number 16. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 16. The Bible says this, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. And with this, we're going to see that, of course, God keeps his word. But we're going to start a series that we're going to start from this week and next week, dealing with the lies in the textbooks. That today, we're going to cover the lies in the textbooks, dealing with the area of biology. Now, as we explained before, we're not going to cover them all. But we are going to lay some groundwork now. We've already hit some lies in the textbooks in earlier sessions. But here we're taking a specific look of things that textbooks say, dealing with the idea of biology and trying to get an understanding for ourselves. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God, a God who's worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be served. And we're asking that you would give grace and mercy and understanding to us. Lord, I'm asking that you would just please help us to have a great understanding. Help me, Lord, in a special way to keep my mind and attention upon you. Lord, I'm asking that you would just set things in order. Help me to be settled down into this, to be able to clearly explain it. And again, I need your help, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs> the Bible goes on with the same idea in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs chapter 19, and verse 5, it says, A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. It says in Proverbs 19.5, <laughs> Uh, sorry, dealing with the idea of the gospel records, wrong reference. Ye of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He is a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. We know that Satan is the father of lies. He's the one that helps propagate lies, and people buy into it and spread those lies. Now, as we go to here, we need to have a little bit of a history lesson to tie into our science lesson. We begin with a man by the name of James Hutton. In his book that he wrote, The Theory of the Earth, James Hutton suggested that the earth was much older than what people thought. Now, when he published his book, The Theory of Earth, it was published in 1795. All the way up to this place, <coughs> uh, people had believed that the earth was just thousands of years old, like the Bible said. Now, the timing of his book was ripe with uh, what was going on. At this time, there was a big revolution of thought and idea against the monarchy. We had the American Revolution, was set, which was set apart from the rest of them, but it was followed by many other revolutions. The French Revolution, was, which was not godly. But all of these revolutions were against the established authority at the time. And so when someone is writing a book saying that the authority of the Bible is wrong, well, people were buying into it. Because it was bringing into their idea. For example, the French Revolution was trying to get rid of God out of the whole equation in the first place. As well as these other revolutions that went in. They were all trying to fight against the established theories at the time. The established monarchy, the established governments. 
Now, as I had said before Hutton's book, most people thought the earth was only a few thousand years old. But because of the writings of James Hutton, people begin to uh, carry this idea of uniformitarianism. We'll get into that definition in a second. But notice this, that in his book, he inferred, he hypothesized. All of these were just ideas that he had, but these ideas caught on with the idea of a teaching now of uniformitarianism which became a scientific uh, theory or idea or philosophy that it just came from his musings. What is uniformitarianism? Uniformitarianism says that the present is the key to the past, meaning that we can observe how things work today. And if things work like this today, then they must have worked that way in the past. So we could watch sedimentary layer and we could see how long it would take for sedimentary uh, uh, ground to form, take that measurement and work backwards. So it sounds logical, but it takes disasters, it takes natural occurrences, and it takes God out of the equation and just works off the natural senses of it. We know that the Bible is the only perfect key to the past, that if you want to find out about the past, we study God and his word. He gives us the insight to it. Well, going back to James Hutton, he had a great influence on a man by the name of Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell is going to be a very important figure. So we need to keep this tr uh, lineage traced. James Hutton convinced people that the earth was older than what it really was. He influenced a man by the name of Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell wrote a book called Principles of Geology. This is going to be a very influential book of its time. Here's some of the quotes he says in his book. He says the ancient doctrines like the Bible, that they rested on scriptural authority and he wanted to reject that. He says it's based off accusations found on religious prejudices. When you go through his book, it is dripping through a venom of hatred towards God and towards his word. In fact, he had a specific goal. He uh, spoke about that men of superior talent like himself who thought for themselves and were not blinded by authority like the Bible. I could think for myself, I don't need the Bible to tell me what to do. In fact, his goal was to free science from Moses. Let's get rid of the Bible. Let's get rid of biblical thinking because it's holding back science. Now, again, this is his book, but his book had a great influence upon it because it influenced a young man by the name of Charles Darwin. So notice as we're starting to peg from one person to another to another. Charles Darwin was 22 years old, fresh out of uh, school to be a preacher. By the way, he didn't have a scientific degree. I have more science degrees than he has. He was just a preacher. And by the way, a loser too. He couldn't hold a job, couldn't do anything. So his rich daddy said, how about this? I give you a tour around the earth on my dime. How many of us would like to have the vacation like that? That'd be nice. He says here, then maybe after you uh, take this worldwide tour, you'll get your act together and make something out of your life. And so he went sell on the HMS Beagle. Now, <coughs> Charles Darwin brought his Bible because he's a graduate of Bible college you're supposed to bring your Bible. But he also brought Charles Lyell's book on principles of geology on his five-year tour. So he brought this book with him. The preacher who um, gave it to him warned him, don't read it. It's going to wreck your faith. I keep wondering why did he give it to him in the first place? But he told Charles Darwin, don't read this. Don't believe it. But Lyle's book changed Darwin's life forever. Notice what Darwin said as he was reading about Lyle's book. He said, thus disbelief crept over me in a slow, rare, but at last it was complete. The rate was so slow I felt no distress. I have never since doubted, even for a single second, that my conclusion was correct. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish that Christianity be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe and this world include my father, brother, and almost, yea, all my friends would be everlastingly punished. This is a damnable uh, doctrine. Now, we understand we hate the doctrine of hell, but we believe it because the Bible says so. 
But he says, I don't want to believe this. So I'd rather choose to believe something else. And Charles Lyle's book gave Darwin a reason not to believe the Bible. Now, it's pretty amazing since he just graduated Bible college. Graduated Bible college, he was looking for a reason to reject the Bible. And so reading this book did so. In fact, Darwin dedicated his second edition of his Origin of Species book to Charles Lyell because without Charles Lyell's influence, you wouldn't have the book Origin of Species. Now, Darwin went on a worldwide tour around the earth, but he took a pit stop at the Galapagos Islands. There at the Galapagos Islands, he went and explored for quite a while, and he made observation of the different finches. Darwin loved birds. He loved to study birds. And so he studied the different finches that they had in the islands. He studied ones that had big beaks, long beaks, small beaks. He studied the different things. He spent a lot of time sketching finches and watching them. Again, how many of you like to have a vacation where you did nothing but take pictures of birds and just had all the time just to do so? And so he took all this time to do this finches. With this, he started to come with conclusions. Hmm, I look at all these finches here. I wonder if they had a common ancestor. Yeah, I bet you it was a bird. But he came with this conclusion and wrote the book Origin of Species with the idea that I bet you that this finch had a common ancestor. I bet you it was a bird. Now, here's what he said. It is truly wonderful fact that all animals and all plants throughout all time and space should be related to each other. So he studied these finches and came up with a conclusion that whales and hamsters and corn all have the same common ancestor. Well, that's an observation that was good, bad conclusion. Now, evolution itself is based off of two faulty assumptions. The first one is that mutations make something new. So whenever you study in the textbooks about evolution, they're going to bring you these two premises about how evolution works. They're going to tell you that the first one is that mutations make something new. And that if you have a mutation, you're eventually going to come up with something beneficial that's going to change the entire species. The second idea is that natural selection makes it survive that mutation that's new and it will survive and eventually take over the population. The problem with these two is that it's an evolution um, that they are not provable and observable or testable. And we're going to show that in a second. Evolution of itself is a religion of death, not life, that things have to die in order for something to live. That's the whole idea of evolution, that other species had to die out so the one could live. So with it, we come to a theological question. Did man bring death into the world, as the Bible said, or as evolution says, did death bring man into the world? Again, these are opposing theologies, opposing things here. Which one is true? So here in a textbook here, it will say this, mutations are the original source of variation. And so mutations are just variations. All right. We observe that there's variations. Some of you have brown eyes. Some of you have blue eyes. Some of you might have green eyes. Some might have uh, gray eyes. Or it could be like my wife who changes colors depending on the uh, different clothes she wears. It's pretty cool. But we know that there's different mutations. Some of us have darker hair. Some of us have lighter hair. That those are different variations, but we're still people. <laughs> no matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. What they do is rearrange information that they currently have, but they do not increase in genetic complexity, meaning that it can only use the information that's available. It cannot make new information, which in order to make a new species, you have to have new information. Mutations can only rearrange the information it has available. For example, here's a five-legged cow. Now, does that make it run any faster? Nope. Not at all. All it is is a rearrange of information. No new information is added, but it, this is still a mutation. But it doesn't help the species. Here's another one. Here is a short-legged sheep. Now, again, no new information is added. There's a loss of information. And will that sheep survive in the wild on its own? Not at all. The first wolf is going to be glad to catch that thing. How about this? A two-headed lamb. Will that be able to survive in nature? 
No, it's a mutation though, but it's no new information added. It is a rearrange of the current information it has available. How about this? A two-headed turtle. It may be a mutant, but it's not a ninja. It's just, it's, it's a mutation, but is it going to help it survive? Is it going to be any smarter? No, not at all. In fact, until winter comes, it's going to have a hard time because they don't make a double turtleneck. Now, let's give an example of this. In the genetic code, you have a certain amount of information that's available. For example, if we took the word Christmas and we arranged the letters, we could get different words. Give me a couple words that you could get just using these letters here. Christ. Okay, that's a good one. Chris. All right. And we could get a lot of different words, right? We could get hat, mat, Chris, Christ, ram, sat, hit. We could get several words, but all of them are the, using the letters we have available. Could you make the word Xerox? Queen? Zebra? No, in order to rearrange that, you would have to add information to it. Mutations do not add information. All they do is rearrange the information that they have available. Does it make sense? And yet, in the textbooks, they are going to teach this. That it says, here's a normal fruit fly, have two wings. Here's one that has four wings. Like a rare mutation, most, like most mutations, it's harmful. But beneficial mutations are rare. Now, you want to know how rare? They don't even show them in the textbook. If there was a beneficial mutation, don't you think they'd show them in the textbook? Instead, they can show all these other mutations. In fact, in science, mutations are either <clears throat> harmful, deadly, or neutral. That's it. We have no example of a good mutation or a beneficial mutation. They are either harmful, lethal, or neutral. For this four-legged, uh, four-winged fly, is that more helpful? No, not at all. So why don't they show us example of a beneficial mutation if mutations added to a species? That's a great question. One professor did say that he could perform a, uh, prove a beneficial mutation because people who have sickle cell anemia are less likely to get malaria. Okay, that's an observation. People who have sickle cell anemia have, uh, can't get malaria. You want to know why? Sickle cell anemia causes it where you have... Uh, your cells are misshapen and you can't carry enough oxygen in your body. Is that beneficial? No. no, it just happens to have the side effect that you don't get malaria as often. That's probably not a good trade-off. Now, here's a textbook here, and they'll have whole chapters on evolution and talk about the different parts of evolution. Here inside of here, it says how natural selection causes evolution. Is that a true statement that natural selection? Now I want you to pay attention to the word selection. Now remember evolution is based off two faulty principles, mutations and natural selection. Notice that word selection. It's not creative force. It is a selective force, but the textbooks are going to teach them that natural selection causes evolution. Now, creationists have no argument with natural selection. We thought of it first. It is only a conservative process that removes defective organisms and keeps the species strong. By the way, this was a writing 24 years before Darwin. And they're talking about that creationists have always believed this, that we have no problems with it because it is natural selection, not creation, natural selection. Natural selection may have a stabilizing effect like quality control, but it does not promote speciation or different species. It is not a creative force, as many have suggested. It is a selective force, as we keep saying. It does not create a new species. The only thing it does is keep a species strong. It is quality control. Natural selection can act only on those biologic properties that already exist. It cannot create properties in order to meet adaptational needs. So again, it is selection, not a creative force. So it cannot create a new species. So mutations are not beneficial 
and that natural selection keeps a species strong, it doesn't create a new species. But yet they have whole chapters saying how these two make new species all the time. Here's an example here. Here saying that we have finches with larger and smaller beaks and that many of the finches with smaller beaks did not survive the tough periods during the drought. Well, that's an observation. That's part of what had happened there. But yet they want to use it that over long periods of time, natural selection can lead to evolution. Well, you just killed out a whole bunch of birds. How is that making more birds? It doesn't work out that way. Now, we do believe in quality control. We know we have factories that produce car. They have a quality control section to make sure that the cars released are going to be working the way they ought to. So according to the textbooks, how long will it take for that car to turn into a plane? No, quality control is not a creative force. It just makes sure that the quality of the product you're sending out is of good quality. That's all natural selection is. By the way, it is not always uh, survival of the fittest. It doesn't uh, even explain the arrival of the fittest. Just because a species is strong, it doesn't explain how it got there. Now, as a side thing, if you kind of like words, survival of the fittest, the phrase is a tautology. What is that? Meaning it answers its own question. For example, why did it survive? Well, according to this theory, this idea, because it was the fittest. Well, how do you know it was the fittest? Well, because it survived. That's the idea of survival of the fittest. It just goes round and round and answers its own question, but it doesn't explain how it got there. By the way, it is not survival of the fittest. When a whale is going and eating a bunch of fish, it doesn't ask him, hey, are you fit? Are you the best? Are you the weakest? No, sometimes it's just survival of the luckiest. They just happen to get out of the way. That accidents happen. <laughs> now, most evolutionists will tell you that macroevolution is just microevolution over longer periods of time. Remember, we defined those words at the very beginning. Microevolution is variations. They say if there's enough variations, you could turn into a different species. So if you have enough blue-eyed people here and yellow hair people that you're going to finally turn into a better human. That doesn't work that way. We know that it doesn't <coughs> work that way. Let me give an example. We know that variations happen, but they have limits. For example, farmers breed for bigger pigs all the time. They're always trying to get a bigger and bigger pig. But can you ever get a pig as size as Texas? No, they're going to have limitations of how big they can get. We know that roaches become resistant to pesticides and th that they have to come up with different pesticides all the time because the roaches become more resistant. But will they ever be resistant to a hammer? No, they have limits, right? We know that <laughs> they could produce the same kind of animal or plant, but that's not evolution. A dog is always going to produce a dog. It already has the information of that variation already present. So for dogs, by the way, all dogs uh, variations have been human made. That they have bred dogs to get all the different variations of dogs. None of those happened by nature. Those were happened by someone interfering and creating that species. But no matter what they did, it's always going to be a dog. It has a limit. No new information is added. In fact, when you breed dogs, you're taking away genetic information that's going to make them become weaker. As much as I love, um, um, excuse me, German shepherds, my favorite type of dog, they have hip problems because of the issues that they have. That there are problems that they have because of the materials up there. You can't get a dog to turn pink. You could dye it, but it won't naturally turn pink, and you can't get a dog to fly because that's adding genetic information that they do not currently have. <clears throat> we know that the gene pool of a new variety is limited than before and less able to adapt to changes. For example, chihuahuas cannot produce Great Danes. They don't have that genetic availability within them. In fact, not both of them have the same survival rate in the real world. In the real world, let everything happen. How long would a chihuahua survive? Probably until lunchtime, right? It won't survive long. We know we live in farm country. They do all kinds of things with corn, cross-beating corn and try to make sure that we get the right variations of corn and going through all the different steps of it. We know for corn, no information was <laughs> uh, added 
but information was lost in order to get the specific corn. Real evolution requires an increase in genetic complexity, not just a shift in the frequency of the genes. Natural selection and mutations cannot give us new information. And so evolution is limited, it can't exist, because it has no way of getting new, uh, <coughs> new information by random chance. We know that the farmers, they do a lot of things to try to get the perfect corn, and they have to mark, this is this corn here, and don't cross it with this corn, because it may blow something up, that they keep them separate, and they keep working on it. But no matter how much they manipulate corn, you will never get a whale from a corn stalk. And no matter how much they work at it, you'll never get a tomato or a gerbil or a hamster. You're not going to be able to produce that from corn because it does not have the genetic material for it. You could take all the different variations of dogs, but when it's all said and done, they're still dogs. And yet you have textbooks that give us a fancy name. They call it divergent evolution. That's a nice fancy name. You can give it a fancy title all you want, but it doesn't change the facts that it's still a dog. So let's kind of review the timeline of what occurred. You have Hunton's book, The Theory of Earth, that made people doubt the earth and how old it was. Then you had Lyle's book that made people doubt the flood, trying to say that things always work, that we've been millions of years, and to get rid of that catastrophe. Then you had Darwin's book that made people doubt the creator. All of these work together to help create a system of belief that brought people away from the Bible and replace it with something else. The Bible says something about this in 1 Timothy chapter number 6 and 20. It says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. And that's exactly what evolution is. It has no basis to stand on and we are to avoid it and to watch out for it because it could damage so many things that we're going to cover in the next uh, three sessions after this. We're going to show more and more how damaging this idea of evolution really is. Adolf Hitler loved evolution. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. But he said, let me control the textbooks and I will control the states. That's exactly right. That's why these lies are going to be found in the textbooks because they're trying to convince and lie to kids to make them think of evolution and reject God's word. Some people can make good observations and still come to wrong conclusions. Let me give you an experiment that had occurred. One day, some brilliant scientists decided to experiment with a frog to determine how far they can make it jump. The experiment was is that they were going to test how far it could jump, then take off a leg bit by bit by bit just to see how far it would jump. So they went ahead and did this experiment. So they got the frog and they tried to get it to jump as far as they could with all four legs. Jump, frog, jump. And it jumped 80 inches. Great. So then they took a knife and they cut off one of its legs and then they said, jump frog, jump. And they got it to jump about 70 inches. Great. They cut off another leg and said, jump frog, jump. And this time it only made it 60 inches. So they finally cut, <laughs> cut it down to one leg. Jump frog, jump. And this time it landed 50 inches. So they went ahead and cut off the last leg. Now, based off the data, what we got so far, what was the expected amount? 40. So they said, jump frog, jump. And it didn't jump. Jump frog, jump. And it didn't jump. So they had an expected value, but what happened is that it didn't move anything. So then they went ahead and wrapped up their uh, paper and their study, and they came up with some conclusions. They said that the frog jumped less as legs were removed. Well, that's a good observation. We can figure that out. They, good thing. But then they came to a conclusion to this. So a frog with no legs goes deaf. We yelled at it and yelled at it and yelled at it, and it didn't move. So it must not have hurt us. Well, that's a bad conclusion. People can make good observations and still come to a wrong conclusion. We have to be aware of that, that we need to study what it is. 
There was a famous fruit fly experiment that what they did is they decided to test hundreds of generations of flies and they did everything they possibly could to fruit flies. They radiated them. They put poison into them. They put radiation inside of them. They microwaved them. They did all kinds of things with them and they did hundreds of generations of flies and they came up with different results. They came up with some curly wings. They came up with some with no wings uh, what would you end up calling them if they didn't have any wings? A crawl or a walk? I mean, they couldn't be a fly no more, right? But they did all these experiments. They came up with some with red eyes, some with white eyes. And so they went and did this experiment, a big famous experiment. And then they came up with some conclusions on here. They said the fruit fly refuses to become anything but fruit flies. So their conclusion was, our conclusion is that fruit flies have evolved as far as they're ever going to evolve. Well, is that a correct conclusion? Could it be that they were designed in a certain way and that they didn't have to be evolved? That maybe evolution doesn't work? Maybe that's another conclusion? And so they did this with just hundreds and hundreds of generations of flies doing everything they could and they could not make it evolve into something else. So the conclusions were all mutations observed produced were... Uh, <coughs> And the flies were inferior to the original. Good observation. None of those flies were better than the original. So their conclusion was that fruit flies must have evolved as far as they can go. Bad conclusion. Again, people can make good observations but come to a wrong conclusion. Their wrong conclusions are usually based off of their world view of how they see things. Here's another one. I remember being taught this as a kid and thought it was kind of cool and we did experiments with it. This was the famous moth fly, or moth inside of England. And so in England, they have what is called birch trees. And birch trees have a natural white bark. And they said what happened during the Industrial Revolution because of all the pollution is that the outside of the bark of the birch trees became darkened. And so because of this, it had changed the frequency of the white moths compared to the dark moths. Some of you taught this when you were a kid. And uh, they said that the population went down, that there was during the Industrial Revolution, there was only 5% of the white moths and 95% of the black moths. Whereas before the Industrial Revolution, the population was 95% white moths and 5% black moths. And they, uh, their explanation for this is that because the black moths had blended in with the um, bark so much that the birds would eat the white moths rather than the dark moths. And that was their explanation for it. The problem with this is that the 40 years of observing trees, they only had two moths that land in the trees over the 40 years. And in order to get these pictures here, the photographer had to go find them and pin them to the tree to take the pictures. That's called fraud. And yet they teach that in the textbook as fact and show the picture as an illustration of how it worked. The Bible says in Proverbs 19.27, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth the air from the words of knowledge. They have these still taught in textbooks today and gives an example, but they are not true and they don't work <laughs> such as that. Revelation uh, chapter 4 verses 11 and 10, it comes with the conclusion that God has created all things. And I'm thankful that God has created us. He has created us in a wonderful way. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But God had made us. And that meant all of us. Every part of us. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, Heaven is thy throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all of these things? God made everything and he knew what he was doing when he made them. What did he make? Well, in Psalm 94 verses 8 and 9, it said, He that formeth the eye shall he not see? Now think about the eye and how complex it is. God made the eye. The, the eye is a very complex thing. That in order for the eye to work, all the parts have to work together. Either they work or they don't work. Some of us who are losing their vision, you understand that. Your eye either works or it doesn't work. That 
your eye could not have slowly formed over the process of time. Because what good is a retina without any light coming in? What good is a pupil without a retina to receive it? What good is an iris? All of these things have to work together. So it was either made together, but it could not have formed slowly over the process of time. You know, even Darwin recognized this. Darwin said in his book here, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Even he says, you know, this eye is complex. I cannot see how it slowly created over, the, it's, uh, over time. It could not have slowly formed. Well, that's a big deal. The eye is a very complex organ that has to work together all or none. And so what the evolutionists have to say is that you had something that was blind and then the next generation somehow had an eyeball that worked. Well, that's a big jump, isn't it? <laughs> your retina of your eye is less than one square inch, yet it contains 137 million light-sensitive cells. Your eye is a very complex organ that has to work together with so many working parts in it. It is not a simple organ. It would take a minimum of 100 years of Cray computer, that's an old-fashioned computer, supercomputer, to simulate what happens in your eye many times every second. That means when you are in receiving information, it would take world-class computers tons of computing time just to process what you see in one second. But your, your, your eye receives it all, and then your brain interprets it. It's pretty amazing, everything, that, how it works. And yet, the textbooks would say the human eye is a product of millions of years of evolution. There's no way it could have been over millions of years. It either works or it doesn't work. Here's another one. <laughs> Here's a textbook here. Uh, it gives a little thing. Let's zoom it in a little bit. It says you could better understand how an eye may have evolved if you picture a series of changes during the evolution of an eye. Notice what they're saying. In order for evolution to work, you have to picture it in your brain. They can't show you it, but you have to picture it. It has to be in your imagination. You must picture or imagine evolution because you cannot observe it. By the way, that's the whole basis of science is what we can observe and what we can test. It only takes place in the imagination. Psalm 94. It says, understand ye brutish among the people, ye fools, when will you be wise? And he that planteth the ear shall he not hear? He that formeth the eye shall he not see? God is saying, when are you going to be wise about this? God made the body, including the eye, and he knew how it worked. Let's go to another lie in the textbook. We spend a lot of time talking about evolution and, and all of that stuff. How about this? DNA proves evolution. As we advance further and further in science, even in modern ages, we know a lot about DNA, genetic testing, markers. We do all of this other stuff. Does DNA prove evolution? Well, the textbooks like to say it does. They have whole chapters on here saying evidence from molecular biology, evidence from DNA. It's that Darwin speculated forms of life are related. But notice this, it said, this speculation has been verified. And they go on to tell that how has it been verified? Through DNA. DNA has proven evolution according to them. Well, is that true? We know that DNA or chromosomes are the most complex molecules in the universe. They are very information packed. The average human has 50 trillion cells. The total DNA from these cells would fill about two tablespoons. So if you were able to take all the DNA out of your body, you would have two tablespoons. That's not a lot. That's two tablespoons, two scoops. But if all the chromosomes from one person were stretched out and laid from end to end, it would go from the earth to the moon and back a half a million times. Much more is that each of these strands of DNA has information in it. The code in the chromosomes are more complex and hold more information than all of the computer programs ever written combined. You have a lot of information there. If you took all the information of the chromosomes in one human being and typed them out into books, it'd be enough to fill the Grand Canyon 78 times with just one person's DNA. There is a lot of information in there in DNA. That's a lot of information to hold inside of it. 
The Bible says, I will praise him for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm so thankful that God knew what he was doing to put all that information inside of us and make it work correctly the way that it does. From conception and the birth, a baby adds 15,000 cells per minute. So in a mother that has a baby growing, in the minute that I've been talking, it's already gained 15,000 cells. That's a lot of cells that's multiplying and growing every minute. Each cell is more complex than a space shuttle. And God is making those things multiply inside of the body rapidly with all the information that's going to be needed in there. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful God that we have. The probability uh, or the chance of one DNA arranging itself by accident, by chance, has been calculated one chance in one to the 1,119,000 uh, <laughs> Uh, to the, sorry, I forgot scientific notation. Forgive me. It's just a big number. Just to modify that, the entire universe is 10 to the 28th power inches in diameter, meaning that the, the odds of evolution happening to form one DNA is bigger than the entire universe. That's pretty astrological odds. Well, if evolution's true and it's based off of DNA... Well, it seems logical that the more chromosomes that DNA, that chromosomes that an organi uh, organism has, the further it's evolved. How many of you know how many uh, chromosomes we have? Come on, science people. We have? We have 46. 23 pairs, 46 chromosomes, all right? So we have 46 chromosomes. So let's just take animals and arrange them in complexity based off of their chromosomes. Penicillin has two chromosomes, that's it. After that, you have a fruit fly that has eight, and then a tomato that has 12. So since penicillin only has two, it must have evolved first. It's not very complex according to this chart. But as you go on, you can see that things evolve a little bit more. A housefly and a tomato both have 12 chromosomes. Are they just as complex creatures? Mm -hmm. Well, as things go on, we have an opossum redwood and kidney bean, all with 22 chromosomes. They must be triplets. I mean, they do look together, right? They look the similar. You could see the similarities in complexity of a redwood, of a possum, and a kidney bean. I mean, they, they all have uh, 23 chromosomes or 22 chromosomes. Well, let's go to the chart. We know that a human has 46 chromosomes, so we're more evolved than the rest of them. But if you wait a little bit, guess what? You could stand right next to a smoker and tobacco has 48. It must be more complex. So the next time you're next to a smoker, you could say, you smell more evolved than me. <laughs> Notice an amoeba has 50 chromosomes. An anema is a one-celled creature, but it has 50 chromosomes, more chromosomes than a human. Well, let's go up the chart. We have chicken and dog that has 78 chromosomes. Do you know a dog has more chromosomes than you? So we got twins, chicken and dogs, they're similar. Well, you keep going evolve, you get to a carp. One day you could be evolved enough to be a carp. And one day, if you study really hard and pass all your classes, you could be a fern that has 480 chromosomes, 10 times more chromosomes than us. Does that make it more evolved than us because it has more chromosomes? Well, evolution would like to say it's true, but none of them have this chart because this chart just kind of throws everything away on them. That DNA does not prove evolution whatsoever. What about embryology? Now, let me pause. This is an important subject. We're going to bring this up several different times in the next couple series. This is going to be one of their important marks of evolution and why they teach evolution. Embryology. Again, something I was taught when I was a kid. Let's explain what embryology is. The textbooks are going to say evidence from development. That because of a child and how they develop inside of the womb, it is evidence of evolution. So when a child's developing in the womb, does that prove that evolution was true? What do they mean by this? 
Well, they say in the textbook, the similarity between the early stages of development of many different animals helped convince Darwin that all forms of life had common ancestors. Well, that's a big deal to say that all animals have the same sort of development. Darwin considered this by far the strongest single class of facts in favor of his theory. Heckel called this the biogenical law. If you're not familiar with this name, may I tell you, get to know this name, Heckel. We're going to bring him up several different times. He is going to be called the bulldog of Darwin's theory. He is going to do a lot. We're going to speak about him in just a second. He was also a German scientist. And he is going to do a lot to form the theory of evolution for German thought for the Nazis to follow because of evolutionary thought. We'll get into that in two weeks. Heckel is an important name, but let's see what Heckel does with this. They're going to call all of this a very fancy name, ontogeneity recapulates phylogeny. That's a big thing name. I made sure that I was, I went to Google to make sure that uh, I was pronouncing it right, but that's a big strong name. It's a big scientific name, but it's dealing with the idea that, that embryos go through the series of evolution inside of the womb. Here is this textbook. It says the presence of these fish-like structures and the embryos of different species show that animals evolved from fish and share the basic pattern of fish development. So what they want to tell you is that when the baby begins in the womb, that it's going to start off as a fish. And we're going to show in just a second their proof and evidence for it. Then it's going to turn into an amphibian. Then it's going to eventually uh, lose its tail and grow legs. And then it's going to slowly go through the mammal stage until it finally becomes a human. That it says the stages of evolution are happening inside of the womb. Well, that's a pretty bold statement. And by the way, I remember being taught that when I was a kid. It says it's as if the embryo retains a memory of its origins and starts to copy them through development. By the way, this is a textbook that is teaching the kids this, that you are going through the stages of evolution when you are in development. The theory of evolution was the same theory that Freud had developed his idea of psychology on. That in all of his papers, he would talk about ontomagy recapulates phylogeny, meaning that his idea of psychology was based off the idea of evolution, especially that humans developed and went through the evolutionary stages inside of the womb. That means psychology as a field is based off of evolution. Is something based off of evolution going to come to the same conclusion about man and how man should treat sin and how man should deal with other things? Not at all. By the way, another person we'll cover in two weeks that was taught this and had bought it hook, line, and sinker was a man called Dr. Spock who wrote all of the child rearing classes. We'll see about what he says about this later. But he based all of his theories of raising children based off of evolution and this idea that the womb, uh, that the baby is going through his evolution in stages in the womb. And it's going to come to bad conclusions on child rearing because instead of raising kids like the Bible said, it's going to raise kids as if they were animals and going through evolutionary stages. And it's going to be a completely different thought. We'll show that in two weeks, especially what happens when Dr. Spock found out that he was wrong and see about that. That's in two weeks. So here's another textbook here talking about embryology. And here it's talking about that this thing has tails and gill patches, that the baby forming inside of mom has these gill patches. You see these little folds of skin right there? Those are what they call gills that they say that this little baby has gills and it's breathing through here. Here's another textbook. By the way, they have nothing to do with breathing. All they are are folds of skin. They don't help in breathing at all. That guy has lots of folds of skin and he doesn't breathe any better. All it is is folds of skin. It is not gills being formed. But yet they'll teach you that the little babies have those gills and that's going to eventually turn into lungs during the development because as they move from the fish to the amphibian to the mammal stage. That is not scientifically even true. But yet it's still taught in textbooks. 
Now, Ernest Heckel, the guy I told you to remember, he said the turning point of his thinking is when he read Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. Before this, Heckel was someone who claimed to be a Christian. But he read Darwin's Origin of Species and said, oh, that's it. That's it. Forget this God stuff. Forget the Bible. This is true. And he did everything he could to prove evolution. And when there was no evidence, he produced evidence. Meaning he made it up. Now let's learn about what he did. So here is a, draw, uh, a drawing, an accurate drawing of a dog embryo and a human embryo. Now notice they look different. That We know that the early stages, there may be some similarities, but they look different. Ernest Heckel had access to these same drawings and decided by memory, not by looking at it, by memory to draw this. Both of these are at four weeks and you have the horse <laughs> or the dog and the man made to be look the exact same. He did this by memory, not by looking at it, and purposely made them similar. They, they don't look similar at all. Now what Ernest Heckel did is that he decided to put together drawing arts of eight different animals and show how they're similar and how they're going through the different stages of evolution. These were very famous uh, Pictures that went out all around the world. And again, he put these together for the purpose of proving Darwin right. This is what they look like. The bottom is what they really look like. Out of the top is what he drew them to look like. Do they look similar at all? No, they were clearly forged. By the way, as we get better and better technology, we could see the baby growing in the womb more clear than ever. And it proves that Heckel's drawings were not right. So obviously something we could prove today is not true. <laughs> now, Heckel was put on trial seven years after he put these drawings out with his university. When tried by the university court and convicted, he confessed, a small percent of my embryo drawings are forgeries. Those namely for which observed material was incomplete or insufficient to fill in the reconstruction of the missing links by hypothesis and comparable synthesis. He said, I should feel utterly condemned were it not the hundreds of best observers and biologists lie under the same charge. He says, I'm not the only one. I have a lot of people who cheered me on and said, we're going to use your drawings because they help prove what we wanted. By the way, this is the 1800s, just to keep an idea now. The 1800s, this is produced. A set of 19th century drawings that still appear in reference books are badly misdrawn. Although Heckel confessed a drawing from memory and was convicted of fraud, the drawings still persist hundreds of years later, 150 years later. Let me give an example. This is a college textbook. Still using those drawings as proof, modern textbook. This is their evolutionary page. They're talking about it's true. So let's kind of cover what's going on. So Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, was published in 1859. He predicted evidence would be found to support his theory. He says, I don't have proof yet, but I'm sure proof is going to come once people start studying. Heckel faked the, draw, faked the drawings of embryos to use as evidence. He says, we don't have evidence yet, so let's help this along. We know evidence is going to be found, so let's just go ahead and put this out. It won't hurt. Heckel then was convicted of fraud by six professors in his own universities. The gill slits idea is proven wrong in the 1800s. And yet, it's still taught as fact in textbook after textbook after textbook, after textbook, after textbook, after textbook, after textbook. Imagine that. Talking about all these textbooks, college textbooks, other textbooks. Here's a textbook that's interesting. Here it's talking about life. And it says at six months, the fetus looks from the outside like a tiny normal baby, but it is not. That's what a textbook says. It says that it's not a baby at six months or seven months old. It's not a baby. Could you imagine this? The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, thou art with fetus. 
No, it said, behold, thou art with child. There is a difference. The idea of a fetus is carrying the idea that it's not human, but it will be human one day. The idea of a child is that inside of the womb of the mother here, it was a child in God's eyes already. 34% of babies born at five and a half months uh, survive, meaning that they have a good survival rate. But yet the textbook said at seven months, they're not, uh, they're not a child. They're not human. Here's a good example of Samuel Alexander. If you've never seen that story before, he was a 21 week old uh, uh, baby inside of the womb. And during the surgery, the little baby grabs the doctor's hand during the surgery while the baby's still in the womb. He, the doctor said, I never got over it. This is definitely a human that it went out and touched me and responded to me. You could read that article for yourself. It's amazing. So why is this lie kept in the textbook? It was something that was disproved over 150 years ago. Why is it still in the textbooks? That is a great question. Because it is the only way to scientifically justify abortion. Because you're not killing a child, you're killing an animal that is going through the evolutionary stages. You see, there's a philosophy behind it. Why have they kept it for 150 years knowing that it's wrong? Because they have to find some way to justify it. Now let's go to a different subject. Let's cover vestigial organs. Vestigial organs. I'm sure that most of you were taught vestigial organs sometime in your, your school career. What's a vestigial organ? A vestigial organ carries the idea of parts that we no longer use. That over time, because of evolution, we had parts that we used to use but are no longer carry a function. Textbooks will say a great example of a vestigial or organ is the appendix. That, you know, our appendix has no purpose. It's just there wasting space. And so, no problem. Yank it out. No problem. Many structures that were considered to be evidence of evolution, by the way, were called vestigial structures. We know that there are no vestigial organs, that God knew what parts you needed and gave you everything. He didn't create you with spare parts. And then even if there was some, that's the opposite of evolution, right? Evolution is something increasing and getting better. Vestigial organ is the idea of things getting worse and worse or not needed, things being taken away. Here is a scientific dictionary. So a dictionary for science. And here it talks about vestigial organs. In 1925, the evolutionist zoologist Horatio Hackett Newman stated, there are, according to Weiserman, no less than 180 vestigial structures in a human body. That means you're a traveling compartment of an ancient museum. You have 180 parts inside of you that have no purpose. Well, are you just a junk pile of stuff just randomly put in a box and shaken together? Here is a question that was given to all things, the Department of Energy. Should the Department of Energy be asking biological questions? Probably not. So they asked a question to uh, the Department of Energy. What is the function of an appendix? And it goes on and say the appendix has no known psychological function, but represents a degenerate portion of cilium that, you know, basically it's less parts. No known uh, physiological structure. All right, it goes on and said, it believed that the appendix will gradually disappear in human beings as our diet no longer does that. So according to evolution, your appendix is just finally going to just disappear because you haven't been using it for a while and no need for it. It'll go away. Now, again, should Department of Energy be asking biological questions? Now, long regarded to be as a vestigial organ with no function, the appendix is now thought to be one of the sites where immune responses are initiated. That means it's important. So the appendix is required to activate killer B cells in your immune system, just like your thyroid activates your T cells. So your appendix serves a great function to help fight off disease and have an immune response to different things that may affect you. Now, is that an important function? Absolutely. It also removes, an, or the removal of the appendix increases a person's susceptibility to leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the colon, and cancer of the ovaries. They've been able to do science and say, hey, you know what, this is kind of necessary. And yet, they said that this is going to disappear for a while. Then it says we could obviously live without it. Well, you know, there's a lot of things we can live without, but you don't want to, Right. You can live without your legs and your arms, both your eyes and your ears. Here's a guy who's a quadriplegic amputee who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Well, great on him. But don't you think he'd rather have his arms and legs? 
Yeah. I mean, you can live without some things, but doesn't mean you want to or have to. Now, part of the evolutionist will say an evidence of vestigial organs is found inside of a whale. Here's a textbook. Now, do you think a textbook should know something about whales if they're study- writing about whales? Okay. So here they said many organisms retain traces of their evolutionary histories. For example, the whale retains pelvic and leg bones as useless vestiges. So they say right here, these bones that are floating around, that they're evidence that whales uh, used to have something else. Here's a science textbook, a science dictionary. It says whales, for example, have small bones located in the muscles of their body walls that are vestigial bones of hips and hind legs. So that was evidence that whales used to have legs. This is a science dictionary. All right. Not an imaginary book, but here's a science thing. It said the, so do you think a science textbook dictionary should know something about whales? I would agree that they should know something about whales. Here's another one. Whales have vestigial pelvis bones and leg bones that serve no purpose. That they just be there. They used to be four-legged uh, creatures, but now they're not. But they just have these just kind of floating around. Modern whales have hind leg limbs, which are reduced to a few tiny internal uh, things. Hind limb bones that have no function. Again, do you think a textbook should know something about whales? Okay. Just imagine whales walking around. It's true. You learn all about whales. All right. Uh, you go to uh, Milwaukee and go look at this. Now, one of the things that they've discovered is that these bones actually do serve a purpose. And they're very important for the purpose of reproduction and delivering of a baby. So they're not vestigial things. They serve a purpose. But again, do you think that someone who studies whales should know that? Then why are there all these textbooks? Either the people here don't know what they're talking about and should not be writing textbooks, or they're purposely lying. Both choices are awful choices. Right? You think that someone should be able to ask, hey, do you study whales? Yeah. Can you tell me what this is? Is this evolution? No, man. It's for reproduction. Okay. Right? (laughs) And yet you have the textbooks that say evolution from four-legged land-dwelling creatures. What about us? It says all that's left of a tail in most mammals is our tailbone. Did you know that our tailbone used to be connected to a tail? Is that what it says? Well, that's a loss of information. How many of you would like to have a tail to be able to help you out to move things around? And yet they said that the tailbone has no uh, evidence, no purpose. That coxoid bone has no uh, apparent use. The coxoid at the very end, no present function. And seems to be a reminder, a remainder of bones when we used to have a tail. Now, once again, having a tail would be useful right? You could put it to work. Why would you get rid of that thing? Well, you know, we found out that the coxoid, your tailbone actually serves a great proportion and uh, you use it every time you go to the bathroom, that it is very important function of making sure that you evacuate your bowels correctly. And without that, you would be unable to perform that function because they have 18 segments and muscles that are connected to that bone. Do you think someone who studied anatomy should be able to study that and correct a textbook that says, hey, you're wrong? I mean, isn't that information that you think that someone should be able to ask a real scientist and say, what does this do? So either they are incompetent and shouldn't be writing textbooks or they're purposely lying. I meant after all these years, couldn't someone correct them and get it fixed? You think? Evolution is unprovable and unproved. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation and that's unthinkable. Remember, evolution doesn't have a leg to stand on. The only reason why they believe in evolution without evidence is because we don't want to believe in God. We don't want to trust the Bible. We don't want God's authority over us. There is a purposeful agenda in all of this. I suppose the reason why we leapt at origin of species was the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores, meaning that the Bible got in the way of what we wanted to do. And so we had to get rid of the Bible. That's interesting. 
The Bible says in Romans 1.28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were not convenient. They didn't want God in their knowledge, so God said, here, fine, do whatever you want. Have at it. And that's what we have today is people that don't want to have God, and they're doing everything they can to keep God out of their imagination. The Bible says, and for this cause, they shall, God shall send them a strong delusion and they should believe a lie. And again, they would rather believe the lie than accept that God is true. Now, where is this taking everyone? You know, Satan's trying to do everything he can. What's the purpose of this? Satan's a liar. He really wants to use evolution to destroy humanity. Anything he, he could do to convince people that God's not true and not to follow him. And by the way, he's succeeding right now. There are many people deceived because of this. The Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a liar. Titus says, the God that cannot lie. What are we trying to get across here? That we can't trust the textbooks, but we can trust God. That God means what he says and says what he means. And that we need to depend upon him and his word and trust what he says. Even the parts that we don't like because God is telling us the truth. Can you trust him? And will you trust him? Will you allow him to guide you? Will, he allow, you, will you allow him to direct your life to tell you what's right, tell you what's not, not right? To be able to trust him over your feelings and your wants? God is a God who will not lie. And he's a God who will tell us the truth in everything that we do. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.